Throughout the country, on lonely roads where young women have died, ghost stories have been born from their tragedy. In the early 1940s, folklorists Richard Beardsley and Rosalie Hankey cataloged these stories for an issue of California Folklore Quarterly, and the title of their article would give the phenomena a name, The Vanishing Hitchhiker. This season, we will track down these tales, step back through history, and sift through the unique details of each story to determine whether a real local tragedy has been interwoven with the familiar urban legend. I'm your host, Jason, and this is Epitaph. One July night in the late 1930s, a young couple had parked near the north shore of White Rock Lake. Regardless of what they may have said, they hadn't come to this secluded romantic spot to enjoy the glint of moonlight on the water or the lights of Dallas spread out on the horizon. And that's why they hadn't seen the young woman approach their car. She startled them when she tapped on the driver's window. She was pretty and, they could see, dressed in a white dress that was so wet that it clung to her like a second skin. She apologized for intruding and explained that she wouldn't under other circumstances, but she had been on a boat that had capsized and she needed to be taken home. The couple, of course, agreed to drive her, and the young woman got in the back seat. She gave an address in the Oak Cliff neighborhood on the other side of Dallas. She didn't say much on the way, and the small rear windows of that era made it difficult to always see her. When they neared the neighborhood, and the couple turned to ask for directions, she was gone. But the wet seat and the puddle on the floorboards attested that she had been anything but a figment of their imaginations. After a futile search for the girl, the couple found the address that she had given them. The man who answered the door explained that the woman that they described was, no doubt, his daughter, but they couldn't have driven her home. She had died, three weeks ago, in a boating accident at White Rock Lake. The Daniel family, Thomas Walker Daniel and his wife Frances Herndon Daniel, arrived in the Republic of Texas in the late 1830s, not long after it gained independence from Mexico. They found a beautiful tree-lined valley along the Elm Fork of the Trinity River and began a farm. Around the same time, to the southeast, a man named John Neely Bryan, on a mission to establish a trading post for Native Americans and settlers, found the Trinity River and, as it was an easy place to cross the river and along the soon-to-be-established Preston Trail, began plotting a town. By the time he'd returned to his home in Arkansas in 1841, packed up his belongings and made it back to his town in Texas, his customers were gone, so he convinced settlers from the nearby Peters colony to join him. By the 1840s, other settlements had sprung up around the Daniel family's farm too. Egypt, a community of freed slaves, was on the northeastern side of the valley. Calhoun, which would later become Fisher, was established to the northwest. The Republic of Texas was annexed by the United States in 1845, and on February 2, 1856, John Neely Bryan's town, known as Dallas, was formally incorporated as a city. Railroads brought business and industry, attracting workers from not just Texas, but all over the South and the Midwest. By 1909, the city boasted the first skyscraper west of the Mississippi River, but the population was growing faster than the surrounding area could handle, and, thanks to a severe drought, Dallas found itself facing a water crisis. In March of 1910, Dallas began construction on a dam and a spillway on the White Rock Creek, and work was completed on September 1, 1911, filling the valley that had once been the Daniel family's farmland and creating what came to be known as White Rock Lake. Though it was initially created as a reservoir to bolster the city's water supply, voters soon approved fishing at the lake, and soon after, the Dallas Sailing Club, the lake's first boating club, opened. By 1929, Lake Dallas, now known as Lake Louisville, was completed and the city stopped using White Rock Lake as a water supply, and White Rock Lake Park was created, 
opening the lake up exclusively for recreational use. A sand beach was added for swimming, along with a bathhouse on the eastern shore. A municipal boathouse was added to the western shore. On June 1, 1930, more than 17,000 people showed up to watch speedboat races at the lake. Six picnic and playground areas were added, and then a motorboat sightseeing ride. The city's streetcar line arrived at the western shore where a fleet of speedboats were available to take swimmers from the boathouse to the swimming beach. But with all of the activity on the water, there were also accidents. Drownings, boats capsizing and sinking, a collapsing pier, car wrecks, and even a plane crash all claimed lives at White Rock Lake. By the late 1930s, less than 20 years after the lake was completed, reports began to surface of people seeing the spectral apparition of a young woman who drowned beneath its waters. And she wasn't content to just ask strangers to drive her home. The vanishing hitchhiker legend is encountered all across the state of Texas. In the northwest, near Henderson, a girl rides home only to disappear. In the west, near Big Spring, there's another, an accident victim. Near Benavides, in brush country, a young man danced the night away with a lovely girl who left him at the end of the night to return to her grave. These stories are, of course, commonplace all across the country, enough so that we've built an entire season of episodes on them. But the Lady of White Rock Lake isn't limited to just hitchhiking. She's asked for rides home, sure, but she's also known to appear at homes along the lake's northeastern shore, ringing the doorbell and asking whomever answers for help. There was an accident, she says. No, I'm not hurt, but can I use the telephone? And often, the reports of encounters come up with the names of witnesses attached. One of the earliest versions of the stories, reportedly from the 1930s, involves a local physician, Dr. Eckersall. Driving home from a night at the country club, Eckersall saw a young girl by the lake who seemed to be in trouble. He stopped his car and motioned for her to get in. She begged him to be taken to a home and he quickly drove to the address she gave him. As he put the car in park in front of the house, he turned to tell her that they'd arrived, and as I'm sure you can guess, she was gone. The back seat was empty, except for a puddle of lake water where she'd been. Eckersall thought about it for a moment and then went to the door. He rang the doorbell insistently until a gray-haired man answered. A young girl gave me this address, the doctor explained. I drove her here and... The old man interrupted. The young girl, sir, was my daughter. She was killed in a boating accident on White Rock Lake almost two years ago. Another story of an encounter with the Lady of White Rock Lake was chronicled by Ann Clark. It first appeared in the Texas Folklore Society's book, Backwoods to Border, published in 1943. That version didn't have names to it or even a year, but it gave a number of details that might help lead to the identity of the ghost. First, the ghost herself tells the occupants of the vehicle that she was in a boat that overturned. The others are safe, she says, but I need to get home immediately. She gives an address in the Oak Cliff neighborhood, which is on the other side of Dallas from White Rock Lake. It also points to a boating accident and to a summer date, possibly either in June or July. And if we take the story literally, the unnamed couple encountered the ghost on a hot July night, and the grieving father indicated that the sailing accident that led to his daughter's drowning took place three weeks ago. So then the question becomes, are there any accidents that actually fit this story? It was a typical late August night in Dallas, 93 degrees and sunny. Marion Louise Craig, daughter of Marion and Mary Craig, was enjoying a family picnic at White Rock Lake with her brothers and sisters. 
They were there for a party. Her sister Emma had a birthday coming up in a couple days, and not only that, it was the last big week of summer. School would be starting soon. Outgoing and pretty, Marion Craig was an honor student. Even though she was only 16 years old, she was going to be entering her senior year at White Wright High School, just northeast of Dallas. At 28 years old, Reuben was quite a bit older than Marion. He had recently taken a job with American Airways, flying a route from Dallas to El Paso, where he lived several days each week at the Hotel Hussman. The son of a doctor, Reuben was well-known and popular in his hometown of Olathe, Kansas. A veteran of the U.S. Army Air Service out of Fort Sill, Oklahoma, the predecessor of the Army Air Corps and the United States Air Force, he had a reputation as one of the surest and best aviators in the Midwest, participating in airplane stunt shows, tournaments, and parachute contests throughout the region. In fact, his spectacular triple parachute jump at the Kansas City Air Tourney had even made front-page headlines in 1923. And so did his marriage. It was around 7.45 in the evening, close to sunset, when Reuben and Marion left the party. They left their picnic baskets, her family, and his wife and one-year-old daughter, and pushed out onto the water in an unsinkable, airtight metal rowboat. Just before midnight, one of Marion's brothers would discover her body, floating face down in the lake. She was pulled from the water, and her watch had stopped at 8 p.m., right at sunset. No sign of Reuben or their unsinkable boat could be found. Local police considered the accident suspicious and surmised that the rowboat was likely rammed by a motorboat, puncturing its hole, and perhaps knocking Marion out of it before it sank. Reuben, they thought, may have gotten entangled with the boat somehow and drugged to the bottom of the lake. If that were the case, they didn't believe they would ever be able to recover his body. Detectives examined every motorboat on the lake, but found no evidence of a collision. A $100 reward was offered by the lake's motorboat concessionaires for information on what may have happened, with a promise of $500 if the information led to the conviction of those responsible for Marion and Reuben's deaths, but no one came forward with information. For two days, planes flew over the lake, and the motorboats that had been used for recreation were employed instead to look for Reuben's body. Firemen and scores of volunteers helped search. Oars from their craft were discovered, and a hat that Reuben may have worn. And then, 40 hours after they'd left shore, a fireman dragging the bottom of the lake with grappling hooks pulled Reuben Newton's body back onto it. Newspapers had reported that Reuben and Marion were at a family picnic before the boat they were riding in capsized, but if there were some connection between Reuben or his wife to anyone in Marion Craig's family, I can't find it, neither by birth or marriage. It's certainly possible that they were friends, Perhaps Reuben knew Marion's older brothers, or maybe Reuben's wife Dawn had met Marion's older sisters at a church function somewhere. But I can't find any indication from their professions or appearances in various membership directories that their paths would have crossed, professionally or socially, either. That doesn't mean they didn't, of course, just that they never seemed to have worked or even lived near each other. After all, Reuben and his wife had only been in Dallas for a few months at that point, and Marion and her family were from Whiteright, northwest of Dallas. Through the lens of modern society, with seemingly daily headlines of both famous and not particularly famous people involved in scandalous situations with people who aren't their spouses, it's easy to imagine a scenario where a cocky, affable young pilot had other than honorable intentions taking a pretty young woman, who wasn't his wife, out onto the lake at sunset. But without any evidence to indicate what the real story was one way or the other, we can only speculate as to how Reuben and Marion wound up alone together in a rowboat on White Rock Lake. The only thing that we know for sure is that, whatever may have transpired leading up to that point, they both met their ends there. Marion Louise Craig died on the night of Monday, August 24, 1931. 
She was laid to rest at Oak Hill Cemetery in Whiteright, Texas. She was just 16 years old. While Marion Craig's death fits many of the details of the legend, it misses one important detail. Specifically, that she lived in Whiteright, Texas, which is northeast of the lake. She never lived in the Oak Cliff neighborhood, which, in several accounts, is where the address that the young woman asks to be taken to is located. But Marion Craig isn't the only young woman whose death fits the details of the legend of the Lady of White Rock Lake. It was a Thursday evening, late in May of 1927, just before Memorial Day. Hallie Gaston had gone to White Rock Lake with her older sister Fama, her second cousin Emma Jane, Emma Jane's husband George Worthington, and his brother Skyler for an evening of fun and recreation. It was getting close to sunset when they decided to rent a motorboat and go for a ride on the lake. Hallie was an honor student in high school and was active in her church. She often participated in leading the youth services. She graduated from East Texas State Teachers College the year before and had just returned to Dallas from Palacios, Texas, a growing town on the Gulf Shore where she'd recently finished her first year of teaching. Though she'd spent most of the year in Palacios, she still kept an apartment, her permanent legal address, in the rear of her parents' home at 238 Melba Street, near the Oak Cliff neighborhood. Late in the evening, either George and Skyler convinced the girls, or, more likely, the girls cajoled George and Skyler, into renting one of the motorboats and taking it out onto the lake to watch the sunset. Sometime around 9 p.m., after the sun had set and daylight was beginning to fade, on their way back to shore, the inexperienced boaters were caught in either high waves or possibly the wake of another motorboat. Around 300 yards from the eastern shore, near the area known as Big Thicket, their boat went underwater. George and Skyler frantically tried to help the women, trying to keep them above water until a party could arrive from shore. They were able to rescue Emma Jane and Fama. Hallie was brought to the surface once, but it was quickly becoming clear that the men couldn't save all three. It's hard to say for sure what the conversation out there on the water was. No newspaper records it. But it isn't hard to figure out what Hallie may have thought. She couldn't bear the idea of George letting go of his wife, Emma. She couldn't live with herself if she lived and her sister Fama didn't. And she was secure in her faith and firm in her belief that when she took her last breath here, her next breath would be in heaven. So exhausted, she slipped from Skylar's arms and sank to the bottom of the lake. Several men arrived in boats to rescue them, but they were too late. Police officers pulled Hallie's body from the water around 1 a.m. on Friday morning. Hallie Gaston died on the night of Thursday, May 26, 1927. She was laid to rest at Laurel Land Memorial Park, known at the time as New Oak Cliff Cemetery. She was 19 years old. If one were to argue that The Lady of White Rock Lake is simply an adaptation of The Vanishing Hitchhiker, rewritten for the Dallas area by interweaving details of local tragedy with those of urban legend, the drowning death of Hallie Gaston almost had to have been the local tragedy chosen as its basis. Early versions of the story report her requesting to be taken across town to an address near the Oak Cliff neighborhood, which is where Hallie had lived in an apartment at her parents' home. But more interestingly, Hallie Gaston's cousin and her husband, Emma Jane and George Worthington, had gotten married earlier that year, and though they lived in a number of different places, at the time of the accident, the couple lived at 4802 Gaston Avenue. It would make sense that, as Emma Jane and George were the common connection between everyone in the group, it's likely that that's the address that everyone had met at before traveling to the lake that night, and that may well be why the apparition would ask to be taken back there. In the earliest published version of the story, the one in Texas Folklore Society's Backwoods to Border, 
The apparition tells the young couple that she was in a boating accident, but emphasized that everyone else is okay. And that's something that Hallie herself had ensured with her sacrifice. And it's certainly easy to imagine that she'd want to go home to see her parents one more time and to say one last goodbye. But what is hard to imagine is that a collection of people playing what is essentially a game of telephone with the story would know or remember so many of the details of Hallie Gaston's life and her death, much less be able to keep the key components intact through retelling after retelling until eventually it made it into print. Even those skeptical of the story of the Lady of White Rock Lake can acknowledge that, apart from her family, who would have little motivation to revive the tragedy in the form of a ghost story, the only other person who would have known all of those details and addresses was Hallie Gaston. But while Hallie Gaston may tap on windows and ask for a ride back to her home, as with some of the other stories we will explore, after investigating this legend, I've come to believe that Hallie Gaston does not haunt White Rock Lake alone. As we began to explore the details of this legend, versions of the story, reports and sightings, and most importantly, the stories of deaths at the lake that may have fit into the framework of the legend, we came to the conclusion that there is more than one story, more than one death and more than one ghost, that may have become intertwined to make the legend of the Lady of White Rock Lake. While some tales of encounters with the ghost point to the boating accident and the hitchhiker, other versions tell a different story. This is also an accidental death, but rather than a boating accident, they suggest it was a car accident or a fall into the water. Author, historian, and newspaper columnist Ed Sires, a man once called the walking encyclopedia of Texas heritage, shared in his book, Ghost Stories of Texas, another tale of the lady's background. He relayed the legend as told to him by Mark J. McCarthy. During the 1920s, White Rock was a popular recreation spot, and there was an excursion boat operating there. There was a dance band, a small dance area, refreshments, and a way to moderate the summer heat in the days before air conditioning. A Dallas man, some say a bootlegger, and his lady were enjoying an evening on the boat, and on this occasion the party was formal, so they were both in evening dress. They had a severe argument, and when the boat docked, the lady ran from the deck, jumped into the man's large and powerful car, and drove off. The roads around the lake were quite poor at the time, and the lady may have been sampling too much of the refreshments, but as she approached the area where Lother Drive now joins Garland Road, she lost control of the car and it plunged into the lake. The lady died in the accident. McCarthy also told Sires that rather than just appearing as a hitchhiker though, the ghost also appears at homes along the northeastern lakeshore, always in her soaked white gown, always seeking help. There's been a car accident, she says. No, I'm not hurt, but can I use your telephone? When the porch lights came on, she was gone. The only confirmation that she'd ever actually been there was a puddle. Another person, one who wished to remain anonymous, told Sires that not only had he encountered her, but he led her into his home into the telephone. I wasn't a half dozen paces from her, he said. When she began to dial the phone, he turned around to give her privacy. I kept telling myself I knew what she was, but she was too pretty and too real for me to believe it. I could swear I heard the phone ring at the other end of the line. Then someone picked it up, and when I looked around, the girl had vanished. Before that, I was close enough almost to have touched her. She was encountered so often that the owners of one home, the one that used to stand at 9326 West Lake Highlands Drive, actually commissioned a work of stained glass depicting her on its front door. Shelby Dale Berry, 
credited on IMDb.com as an actor, writer, director, and producer of several low-budget exploitation films, reported that in the early 1960s, he answered the doorbell at his home in the early hours of the morning twice to find no one there. The third time the doorbell rang, he was waiting. He swung the door open only to see a crying woman in a soaked white dress, and when he turned on the porch light, she disappeared, leaving a puddle of water where she'd stood. Barry and his wife lived in the 8200 block of San Fernando Way, just a block from where Garland Road runs alongside the southeastern edge of White Rock Lake. It was Thanksgiving night of 1935. Four people were in a car cruising up Buckner Boulevard toward White Rock Lake. Robert Bethurum was driving. Beside him in the front seat was his fiancée, Evelyn Jones. His friend, Vernon Lillard, was in the back seat with Minnie Leaf. Robert, Evelyn, and Vernon had gone to a ballroom earlier in the evening to dance. Vernon had met Minnie there, a brunette in a white dress. At the end of the night, they'd offered her a ride home, but before, someone had made the suggestion that they go up to White Rock Lake. Robert pulled off of Buckner onto a gravel road toward the lake, a cloud of dust behind them marking the path they'd traveled. Evelyn turned to say something to Minnie and Vernon in the back seat. Robert turned his head and looked at her only for the briefest of moments, and when he turned back, his headlights weren't on the road anymore. In fact, the road was gone. The car felt as though it was airborne before it fell out from underneath them, and as it went end over end down the steep 70-foot embankment, everyone inside the car was thrown around, slamming into the windshield, the roof, the seats, and each other. The first thing I knew, Robert would later tell police, we were turning over and over endways. I must have driven straight off the bluff. And then they hit the water. When Robert and Vernon came to, the mangled car was filling with water. There were shards of glass throughout what was left of it in the seats, in the floorboards, in their laps. They both had cuts and bruises, but for the most part, they were all right. Evelyn was half coughing, half sobbing, and half conscious. Vernon had to climb out through a broken window and then helped Robert pull Evelyn from the car. Robert had helped her through the water back to the rocky gravel of shore while Vernon went back to the car for Minnie. When they managed to get Minnie out of the back seat, she was unconscious, unresponsive, breathing, if only barely. They needed to get help. They couldn't see Buckner from here, which meant no one on Buckner could see them either. They could see the porch lights of nearby houses, though. That was probably their best bet, they decided. Find someone who was home. Vernon would go. Robert would stay with Evelyn and Minnie. No one had noticed, though, that during their conversation, Minnie's shallow breathing had stopped altogether. No one answered the door at the first two houses. Vernon rang the doorbell at the third, and the porch light snapped on. There's been an accident, Vernon told the man who answered the door. No, I'm okay, but we need help. Can I use your telephone? When help arrived, Robert and Vernon were checked at the scene, but only had minor injuries, cuts and bruises. Evelyn and Minnie weren't so lucky. Evelyn was taken to the hospital where it was determined that she had broken her back and had internal injuries, but she was reported to be in fair condition the next morning. They expected that she would make a full recovery. Minnie, however, had fractured her skull in the accident and by the time help had arrived, she was already gone. Minnie Chakota Leith, the daughter of Thomas and Ida Leith, died on Thursday, November 28, 1935. She was laid to rest at Laurel Land Memorial Park. She was 27 years old. In 1953, Frank X. Tolbert published a detailed account of an encounter with the apparition in his book, Neiman Marcus, Texas. In that account, Tolbert states that about 10 years ago, so sometime in the early 1940s, Mr. and Mrs. Guy Malloy, directors for display for Neiman Marcus, 
encountered a young woman who walked up from the beach to the road. Mrs. Malloy told Guy to stop, noting that the girl looked as though she'd fallen into the lake. They pulled over and asked if she was alright. She didn't explain what had happened or why her dress was wet, but asked to be taken to an address on Gaston Avenue in Lakewood. They agreed to drive her, and she slipped into the back seat of their two-door sedan. As they began to drive toward her address, Mrs. Malloy turned to talk to the girl, but she vanished, leaving only a wet spot where she'd been in the back seat. They continued to the address she'd given them on Gaston and met a man who explained that yes, he had a daughter who met that description, but she'd drowned several years before after an accident at White Rock Lake. Guy Malloy and his wife Thelma were indeed real people, and according to the city directory for Dallas at that time, he did indeed work as a director for window displays at Neiman Marcus. However, Rosemary Rumbly told a different version of the story in her book, Dallas 2. My good friend Barbara Rookstool vows that her daddy, Guy Malloy, was the one who created the Lady of the Lake legend, she wrote. Barbara told Rosemary that one Friday night, Guy Malloy worked late on a window display at the Neiman Marcus store downtown before driving back to his home in East Dallas. And, she said, it was after 2 a.m. on Saturday morning when Mr. Malloy first spotted the Lady of the Lake rise from White Rock. His daughter Barbara, however, said that not all of Frank Tolbert's version of Guy Malloy's story is true. He just saw her, she said. He never took her home. And afterward, he told the story of the sighting, and it has been told ever since. I think that it's possible that Frank Tolbert, a local history columnist for the Dallas Morning News for nearly 40 years, was actually responsible for blending the two stories, merging Guy Malloy's story with the other legend of the Lady of White Rock Lake. The Malloys, you see, lived in a house that overlooked White Rock Lake. In fact, they lived just across the Dixon Branch from the intersection of Garland Road and Buckner Boulevard. And from their front porch, you could see the spot where Minnie Leith died when the car that she was riding in went into the water. Maybe rather than seeing her come out of the water and asking for a ride home, instead she just rang his doorbell and asked to use the telephone. Epitaph is an independent, bi-weekly podcast. If you like what you've heard, maybe leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you may be listening, and maybe tell your friends about us. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can find us on the web at epitaphpod.com. You can also find us on Twitter at, at @epitaphpod, and by searching for Epitaph Podcast on Facebook. If you've got a few extra dollars, consider joining our Patreon. There you'll get access to Epitaph the Others, our special subscriber-only shows, and we've got a few extra things in the works there, too. This episode was researched, written, edited, recorded, and produced by me. I'm your host, Jason. Thanks for listening.